0: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
1: Alright. Yeah. No, no. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
2: Brexit means Brexit. My
1: administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history
3: of our country.
2: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where generally we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. You know me, I'm Roy Field. Currently, at the moment, I'm sat in Toronto in the Dominion of Canada. We've had him on a few times before, a bit of a friend of the show. We're going to speak to Ian Dale today and specifically about Margaret Thatcher, probably the, the person who single-handedly is created... Um, kind of post-war Britain or at least she ripped up that compact and created a new one and ever since her prime ministership ended um, arguably every prime minister has somehow defined themselves in her wake basically she so is the way that she redefined the united kingdom whether you want to look at putative uh, Scottish independence, really that gets wind in its sails because of Margaret Thatcher. If you want to look at the the, the supposed red wall seats, which have now become blue, um, many of those uh, Labour voters would be um, kind of would have Thatcherite tendencies. So is their importance in British politics that it's only right and proper that we speak to a friend of the show Ian Dale, avowed. Thatcher, right. And uh, you've written a book about her, haven't you, Ian?
3: I've written several or I've edited several books about her. The last one was in 2013. It came out about a month after she died called Memories of Margaret Thatcher. And I got lots of people who had worked with her, politicians, journalists, civil servants, to just write a couple of pages about their memories of her, sort of very anecdotal, um, because I think in many ways there, there is a sort of Margaret Thatcher legend which sometimes deviates from the reality And there, there are lots of stereotypes that people have about Margaret Thatcher some of which are absolutely right but some of which aren't, so I wanted to try and do something that really got the, the true char- her true character a- across, I mean she's got this reputation for um, being very dictatorial but she actually loved an argument and that there are lots of lots of evidence of that in, in cabinet meetings, for example, where she didn't necessarily dictate all the time. And John Major, for example, her successor, he first came to her attention when she held a dinner for government whips and um, he, there was some aspect of welfare policy which he didn't agree with, and uh, they had an absolutely furious argument over it. And He thought that was the end of his political career because he thought he'd just ruined everything. Um, but Dennis Thatcher told him a couple of days later that she had thoroughly enjoyed the argument and within months he had been promoted to the cabinet.
2: Why do you think then, let's just start right there, why do you think that this aspect of her, Was was not really reported on at the time has been lost to history because I see her think of her as being a dictatorial figure, somebody who brooked Mm. no discussion, no debate within cabinet. But you're saying it's quite the opposite.
3: It was quite the opposite. If you look at who was in her cabinet, um, most of the time that she was in power, she didn't have a majority of Thatcherites in her own cabinet. And that, in a sense, led to her downfall, you could argue. If you think about all of the people that were in the cabinet right at the end, um, they were... In many ways responsible for telling her that she couldn't go on and had she packed her cabinet with just yes men and they were they were all men um, there might have been a very different outcome that's not to say that she didn't have uh, supporters in the cabinet of course she did and particularly after 1983 she she did tilt the balance a bit but the trouble is if you're prime minister you don't necessarily do all of the junior appointments the 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 whips office do all of that And over the years, they kept promoting people who were not avowed Thatcherites. So when she needed the support of her ministers in 1990, it wasn't really there. So I completely understand that people think of her as slightly dictatorial because she reveled in this reputation of being the Iron Lady, which the Russians dubbed her in 1977. And it did her the world of good, because when she first became leader of the Conservative Party in 1975 no one really expected her to win and that her four years in opposition were very tough and most conservatives thought that she wouldn't last the course um and so when the russians called her the iron lady that really was worked to her advantage both in this country and indeed around the world and and so as time went on she revelled in that and her, her appearance changed as well her voice changed mm. and she started dressing particularly from the mid 1980s in these sort of aqua scutum, big shoulder pad suits Uh, when she went to a formal dinner there was one right at the end where she almost looked like elizabeth the first (laughs) um so i'm not surprised that people have that image of her but it was very different and you, you you talk to people who worked for her directly in downing street and they they were absolutely devoted to her um she she was very big on sort of knowing how many children people had if they'd been ill um and i mean when you're prime minister maybe that that's not at the top of your agenda but uh i mean there were genuine tears of upset when when she left the building on that day on, what november the 28th 1990 so but, but, but again that is, but, that slightly goes against her hard, hard but, image. but this
2: is the thing there were there were there were tears and then there was a lot of joy as well she's so a de- such a divisive figure but first off um I need you to tell me why you're so enthralled to her, and then let's go back to 1975 with her running, and let's step through in a chronological uh, way through her career, how she reshaped Britain. Because I come at it, come at it from very much the other political uh, tradition in Britain, very much a Labour family. Um, you know, my aunt was a was a councillor in in Brent, the Looney left council. That's what, where I come from, but. We all have to admit that she was seismic in terms of British politics. But first, let's start with you. Why does she play such a pivotal part in your political life?
3: Well, I could be facetious and say that it was when she was education secretary and she abolished free school milk that that was when I became a Thatcherite because I hated the stuff. So I was very pleased when she did that. But my first memory of her was when she appeared on a children's programme on the BBC called Val Meets the VIPs. It was presented by Valerie Singleton, who was one of the presenters of Blue Peter, which was the biggest kids programme. This would have been about 1972, 1973. And a child, uh, you know how children sometimes can ask far better questions than adults? Well, this one was a corker. This child asked... Um, do you want to be prime minister, Mrs Thatcher? And she sort of laughed and she said, no woman in my time will ever be prime minister. And I think she genuinely believed that. Her ambition was to be chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, she was never going to be that under Ted Heath, who didn't really like her at all. Um, But then, of course, the Tories lost the two elections in 1974. Ted Heath didn't go graciously there was a leadership contest and much to everyone's astonishment she won because she was the only one to put her head above the parapet and challenge him uh, and so had all of these uh, very, much better known men who entered the contest in the second round and she still won and i remember the day that she won i think it was february the 11th 1975 i was 12 years old And I remember running up the stairs to tell my grandmother, who was ill in bed, that Margaret Thatcher had been elected leader of the Conservative Party. And my grandmother burst into tears. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And she explained to me later it's because she never thought that a woman could get to the top of politics. And she'd been born in 1894. Mm -hmm. She was a little bit of a feminist, even though very sort of conservative. And And I think there were a lot of women throughout the country who sort of had that similar reaction Um, And that was really, I suppose, the start of my fascination with her. And I remember then in 1978, just before the winter of discontent, when the country was riven by strikes, inflation was at 20%. And I kept thinking to myself, there must be something better than this. And I was, again, only 15. And I heard her speech to the Conservative Party conference. And I thought, you know what? She's not only diagnosed the problems, she's actually got the solutions as well. And that, that was the moment then, I, I suppose, I became a, a real Thatcher supporter. Um, I'm not a blind Thatcher supporter. She did make quite a few mistakes. But I think she was the right politician at the right time. And um, and I think... it. Throughout the world, I think her reputation is much stronger th- than it is in Britain. Oh. If she had left after 10 years, I think her reputation would be very different here as well. Oh.
2: Let's go back to May uh, 1979, and she gives uh, this speech. Uh, Archie becomes the first female Prime Minister.
4: May I just thank you very much. How do you feel at this moment? Very excited, very aware of the responsibilities. Her Majesty. The Queen has asked me to form a new administration, and I have accepted. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfill the trust and confidence that the British people have placed in me, and I would just like to remember some words of St. Francis of Assisi, which I think are really just particularly apt at the moment. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony, where there is error, may we bring truth, where there is doubt, may we bring faith, and where there is despair, may we bring hope. And to all the British people, howsoever they voted, may I say this, now that the election is over. May we get together and strive to serve and strengthen the country of which we're so proud to be a part. And finally, finally, one last thing. In the words of Erin Eve, whom we had hoped to bring here with us, there is now work to be done.
2: To hear that recording, Ian, and the amount of booing that there actually was you know this is she hadn't even got into a stride and the first what um two years of her premiership are going to be um incredibly hard could you just set us through those first couple of years you know we're going to have one in ten brits unemployed and she was incredibly unpopular wasn't she the country is completely on its uppers. It's not her fault. Britain already is a sick man of Europe. As you've said, the winter of 1979 is incredibly hard for James Callaghan. Uh, we have, you know, it's as fundamental as the rubbish is not being collected in British streets. Um, tell us about the start of her premiership.
3: You're right. She inherited a basket case of a country. I remember going on a school trip to Germany in well, 1977 and 79. And we were laughed at. Uh, I, mean, I think it 's really difficult for people under the age of i don 't know fifty to really understand how bad it was. I mean, the country was absolutely riven by industrial disputes, strikes, um, and the winter discontent was the the sort of personification of that. It just summed up the whole of the 1970s in a way. inflation was out of control unemployment compared to ha- where it got to was not high, but it was it was rising. And, um, she came in and had that all that economic situation to deal with now she didn't have an economic background but a lot of her economics uh, economic knowledge came from sir keith joseph who had he not made a slightly weird speech in 1974 he probably would have been the one to take over from ted heath um she spent four years in opposition uh courting all the right-wing think tanks the adam smith institute the institute of economic affairs and they effectively gave her her economic policy which sir Geoffrey howard the The Chancellor then implemented. So she came into power in May 1979 with a cabinet that was overwhelmingly against her. Um, Virtually all of the cabinet bar three or four were people who didn't think she ought to be in the job and they just assumed that she wouldn't be in in the job within a year or two um jeffrey howe introduced a a couple of very um stringent budgets the first one in june 1979 did cut taxes because that was a key aspect of the tory manifesto if you cut taxes it'll increase economic activity um he he abolished exchange controls which again people nowadays say exchange controls what on earth were they well you could only take Um, If you went on holiday, for example, uh, you could take – I can't remember the maximum, but I think it was £50 out of the country, um, which sounds ludicrous today, but that that was the situation at the time. And then in 1981, he introduced a very, very stringent budget, which they knew – would have a, in the short term, a very negative effect on the economy in terms of uh, unemployment would go up. Um, but they had to control inflation and they had to control public expenditure. So it was a real sort of monetarist budget. And when Geoffrey Howe announced it to the cabinet the morning before he delivered it, there were literally gasps of horror among some of the so-called wets, the, the the sort of Heathites in the cabinet. And it took quite – it took at least two years for the effects of this economic policy to start to work in a positive way. And, and it started just before the Falklands War. And this is another one of those myths, Roy Field, where everyone says, oh, well, it was the Falklands War that turned her fortunes. Now, of course, she did become much more popular. But if you look at the opinion polls – in the months leading up to the Falklands War, the opinion polls were starting to turn. I mean, she had been incredibly unpopular by, among many people, but the opinion polls actually started to turn at the end of 1981, at the beginning of 1982. Uh, and then of course, the Falklands War came along and well, we all know what the result of that was.
4: Mr. Speaker, sir, the House meets this Saturday to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, that country's armed forces attacked the Falkland Islands yesterday and established military control of the islands. Mr. Speaker, yesterday was a day of rumour and counter-rumour. <laughs> Throughout the day, we had no communication from the Government of the Falklands. Indeed, the last message we received was at 21, 55 hours on Thursday night, the 1st of April. By late afternoon yesterday, it became clear that an Argentine invasion had taken place and that the lawful British government of the islands had been usurped. Mr. Speaker, I'm sure that the whole House will join me in condemning totally this unprovoked aggression by the government of Argentina against British territory.
2: (laughs) Obviously, that is the start. But there was a real sense, wasn't there, that even if she was starting to rise in those opinion polls, that... um, The country had done something miraculous and that it was by the sheer weight of her leadership uh, that has kind of helped galvanize the country. I remember seeing, was it HMS Invincible come back on news and everyone was waving Union Jacks. It, It felt like the Jubilee. She did lift the country's spirits. You know, that victory also did re-established British prestige didn't it?
3: Looking back and I, I'm st- even though we're what 40 years on from that now looking back I still don't think that we understand the importance of what happened in the Falklands because Britain's prestige on the industrial uh, sorry on the international stage had suffered a, a, a gradual decline that the end of empire the giving all the colonies their independence um, had, had I think Slightly diminished the country. Our relationship with the United States was perhaps not what it might be. As well, you had a, a succession of prime ministers who didn't really seem to value the so-called special relationship—a phrase I actually loathe—but um, in, in the way that maybe some of their predecessors had. Harold Britain uh, was diminished in America when it refused to support or send troops to Vietnam under Harold Wilson. Um, the right decision, I think. But anyway, Heath and Nixon didn't get on. Um, Carter and Callahan actually did, uh, and then of course Reagan came to power. And um, I mean, the rela- there have been many books written about the relationship between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, particularly with regard to the Falklands. And it wasn't quite the love affair necessarily that people imagine it to have been, because they did have some fairly difficult conversations, particularly about the Falklands and also about Grenada in 1983. But there were there were two points in Margaret Thatcher's premiership where she could have been ousted. And this was one of them. Um, when the House of Commons met for a Saturday sitting, which was the first time since the serious conflict in 1956, um, she really feared that by the end of the day, she would be out. And the same thing happened in 1986, um, after, uh, during the Westland helicopters affair, which um, is too complicated to explain. But, um, but I think the Falklands victory, well, it was a it was an astonishing military feat in many ways. I mean, the Falklands were eight thousand miles away. Within within twenty four hours of the uh, islands being invaded, uh, she had authorized a task force to be created, and it set sail. I think within a, i think five days after the invasion, and it took three weeks to get to the South Atlantic. And there were setbacks. I mean, it was not sort of plain sailing there were points where i think she began to wonder whether it would work and most of the cabinet uh i think were very doubtful as to whether um, it was possible to achieve but uh, i mean it, 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 it we the british forces prevailed and it sent a signal i think particularly to the soviet union that I mean, imagine if if we had just caved in and not done anything, the, the signal that would have sent to the Soviet Union. And I think in the long term, in terms of, if you want to put it this way, winning the Cold War – I think that was an absolutely crucial moment. And it also, I think, sent a signal to the Americans that we weren't going to be quite the pushover that some people in the US administration uh, may have thought that we would be. And it was really from then on that the relationship between Thatcher and Reagan uh, and then of course Mikhail Gorbachev came along. She was the first one to meet him and uh, use that phrase: "He's a man we can do business with." And she was the intermediary between him and uh, and Ronald Reagan, and a very successful one too. Mm.
2: A- a- absolutely. Let's go back to that election in 1983, which arguably is the defining election. Um, how does that radically change uh, the complexion uh, politically of of Britain? And this really kind of cements her place, doesn't it? Because up until that point, arguably her her premiership is touch and go type of thing. Yes, there is the Falklands War, but it's that election where we have this blue wave.
3: Yes, it was a huge victory. She won a majority of 144 seats, which... I mean, I can't remember the last time that that happened. It has happened since then with Tony Blair, of course. Um, but it, it was quite something. And there were many Conservative MPs elected in that election that hadn't expected to be elected. I remember the first time I ever went to the House of Commons was a few days after that election. I was invited by the MP that I'd been campaigning for. And we sat down on the terrace of the House of Commons to have a drink. And this other MP joined us, Cecil Franks from barrow Furness. And he looked really miserable. And I said, What, well, you don't look very happy to be here? And he said, No, I'm not. He said, I never expected to win. I've had, to, I'm going to have to give up my career to come and do this. And I don't think he was alone in that. But the, the main effect was that it, it really, Turbocharged her premiership in the sense that she did promote more of her supporters into the into key positions. Nigel Lawson became chancellor. Um, uh, Norman Tebbit was promoted, I think, in that in that reshuffle as well. Cecil Parkinson, who had been chairman of the party, um, she wanted to put him into the foreign office, but it, that was scuppered by the fact that there was a scandal about an affair between him and his secretary. She put him into trade and industry, but of course he quit, had to quit three months later. Um, So, and it was also the time when the whole privatisation programme started. Again, something that um, the Conservatives had always been in favour of the private sector owning industries, but nobody really thought they were going to roll back the entire labour nationalisation programme. And that's what they more or less did. I mean, the the railways weren't privatised until John Major's time, but most other nationalised industries were privatised between 1983 and 1990. Uh, And that, again, it it, it enhanced her relationship with the so-called, and I hate this phrase, working classes, where she'd already sold um, a lot of council houses, and that was Primarily, why she won that big majority, because that the Council estates of, of England voted conservative. I remember in that election campaign, I was running the campaign in one of a very poor rundown estate in Norwich, which had started to change, and you could tell all the houses that people had bought, and she enabled them to do that and similarly, in the privatization program for the first time. Um, people became shareholders in big companies, something that nobody would have even thought about doing even a few years before so that was why that was and the the legacy of that still lives with us today, because at the last election in 2019, the Conservatives got 48% of the so-called working class vote. Labour got 32%. Now, that wasn't all down to Margaret Thatcher. There was obviously the, the whole Brexit referendum issue there as well. But it, it, it just shows that that people think of the Conservative Party as the party of the middle, middle and upper classes, absolutely not in the Thatcher era and indeed I would say today.
2: No, you are right. And um I remember the palpable excitement that um, Sally Moorcroft's mum. So I, I Sally Moorcroft was in it was in my school in my class at school, sorry. And her mum um was so excited about getting BT shares. You know, she was a she yeah. was an aspirational working class woman and she could buy Shares, you know we were selling off uh the gpo uh you know the the, the organization which owned every telephone uh, that we ever there's only two types of telephones you could actually have you know and um i remember being incredibly excited excited about that there was a sense of excitement for many britons uh by the by the middle of the 1980s but there is also a lot of discord. Um, we do have um, Arthur Scargill and the National Union of Miners. And actually, Scargill was proved right in terms of there was a plan to wholesale get get rid of that, that industry. Can you speak to a little bit about us about the areas uh, of Britain, of England, which kind of started to chafe against Margaret Thatcher?
3: Well, she was a divisive figure, and a lot of her policies were divisive. There's no point in denying that. But um, she would say, well, you can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. It, it, I mean, she wasn't a naturally touchy-feely sort of person. It's certainly not in public and o- often not in private. And although a lot of people liked her strong leadership style, a lot of people didn't. And um, so you had there were a lot of demonstrations um, there were still strikes during the 1980s. I mean, we, we, we think now that it all stopped after she came into power. Well, it took quite some time for that to happen. And the miners' strike was a pivotal moment. It was, in a sense, the, the equivalent of the Falklands domestically. Um, but if you, if you think back to how the Heath government fell in 1974, that was because of the miners'. And she had indeed – she knew there would be a dispute with the miners at some point. And Nigel Lawson, who had been her energy secretary in the first term, uh, he had made sure that they were prepared for a strike. There there was a strike in 1981, but she knew that they weren't ready to fight that strike because there weren't the coal reserves necessary. And bear in mind, at that point, coal was the predominant energy source in this country to to, uh, enable industry to, to work so um nigel lawson built up the coal reserves he he wasn't doing it secretly and there's nothing secret about this and this is where Skalgill proved to be a terrible tactician um because he called the strike at exactly the wrong time um when he 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 should have um done it slightly differently it's a bit like sort of in the second world war why on earth did hitler invade russia when he did when he knew what had happened to napoleon um uh, more than a century before um So she knew that this would be literally a fight to the death with Scargill. He didn't have a ballot for a strike. It was, nowadays, it would be an illegal strike. Um, And it was a disaster from start to finish in terms of the organisation. The Labour Party were in a terribly difficult position because they didn't like Scargill either particularly. But, I mean, they couldn't really, they didn't actually offer overt support for the National Union of Mine Workers, and then of course the the miners split. You had the um, the, the official union, and then there was a breakaway union. Um, which again, if you have a divided front, it's going to be much more difficult to win. And there were some big confrontations between the police and um, striking miners. And you had all of the different ragtag and bobtail of left wing groups that would went along to all of these uh, picket lines, essentially ostensibly to cause trouble and um there were some very violent uh confrontations during that period but the longer it went on the more you got the feeling that it was a war of attrition and there was only going to be one result at the end of it and uh, and sure enough after a year that the whole thing collapsed now um you say that there was a secret plan uh to get rid of the entire coal industry well if there, if there was it didn't work for a very long time um and of course, now we we look at the coal industry as something that we wouldn't want to have back because of climate change and the environment. And, and, that's, and this is another thing that will shock you, Roy Field. Margaret Thatcher, uh, Charles Moore wrote about this in his third volume of her biography. Margaret Thatcher was the first international leader to make a speech on climate change in 1988. Now, she had a scientific background. And if you read that speech today, it really does stand the test of time. And she tried to get George uh, Bush, who had in 1989 become president, uh, to really take this seriously. And it's really worth reading that section of Charles Moore's book, because again, it gives you a completely different insight into what she was all about. Because she, she had a scientific training, a scientific mm. background. And she really latched onto this very quickly, way before any other world leaders did. And she made a speech at the UN and um, uh, I'm not going to say she was the first ever person to make a speech on climate change, but she was certainly the first world leader to. So um,
2: we have these pivotal elections in in 83, and then the country's really starting to change by by the mid-80s. And again, just viewing that time from. From a personal perspective, London seems to kind of reinvent itself. You know, the shackles have been taken off the financial industry. Uh, London isn't this kind of grey, slightly dec- uh, decaying uh, metropolis anymore. It's bright and shiny. Property prices are rising. Um, and it's the time of loads of money. How does the Labour Party uh, come, let's say, the next defeat in 87, start to
3: react? Well, I think after two massive defeats, and although the Tory majority wasn't as big in 1987, it, it was still over 100. Um, the, the, Neil Kinnock had succeeded Michael Foote in 1983. And Labour was widely perceived to have, to have fought a better election campaign in 87 than the Tories. They imported some American techniques, particularly in, in their uh, election broadcasts. There was Kinnock the movie with him and his wife walking along the cliff tops and uh, sort of chariots of fire type music in the background. It's hugely impressive. And there was a point in that campaign where the Tories really thought that they were going to lose. There was one rogue opinion poll that really put the wind up them. But. She was returned. Now, I think at that point, even the hardest left Labour Party supporter recognised that something had to change, and it did. And to Neil Killick's credit, he was the one that started the process. He wasn't there to see it completed. Um, But the the Labour Party started to modernise. They brought in Peter Mandelson as Director of Communications, he'd been a TV producer. And he revolutionized their communications techniques. Um, There there were lots of new, bright, young Labour MPs that had been elected in 83 or 87, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown being two of them. And the the shadow cabinet started to look a little bit less staid and old fashioned. And over the course of uh, the five years between 87 and 92, the Labour Party really did modernize. And in the Leading up to ninety two, remember Thatcher had gone in nineteen ninety, and John Major had succeeded her. Most people thought that Labour were going to, if they didn't win that election, they would still they would form the they'd be the biggest party. Um, but they kind of overreached themselves during the election and came across as slightly hubristic. And um, John Major won with a majority of twenty one. Um, it's often I, I often wonder what would have happened had Margaret Thatcher not been toppled in 1990 if she had stayed and fought the next election whether she would have won and of course that was her main main complaint afterwards well i never lost an election um I, they, they got rid of me even though i would proved to be the best election winner they'd had in well a century
2: let's do a, a quick pause um so this is a mid Atlanta recording from mid-atlantic which we're actually doing on clubhouse with with our friend ian dale who um, I can't really call you a conservative pundit anymore, can I, Ian? You, you've, yes. we, we've talked before and you, you've talked about the, the somewhat leftward drift of your political ideology.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think these terms left and right are almost redundant nowadays. Um, I, I would still identify as being on the centre-right in economic terms, I think in, on social issues, I've probably have moved, if you want to put it that way, moved to the left. I, I, I would prefer to say I've become much more socially liberal o- over the years. Um, but I, don't, I certainly don't resile from my sort of conservative beliefs on, a, on an economic front. But on the other hand... You look at where we are on COVID, and I can't argue for a small state anymore, because I recognize mm. that we are in a very different position. And I recognize the, the state has got a big role to play in getting us back on an even keel on the economic front over the next 10 years. I mean, I, I'm 59 years old. I don't expect to see... Um, the, the state go back to the size it was probably in my lifetime so you have to adapt to circumstances there's no point in trying to fight the last war you've, you've got to look at the circumstances the economy the country finds itself in and try and come up come up with the right solutions
2: you know it, it's interesting being over here in north america and specifically when i'm in california um hearing uh, republicans american conservatives speak and it it's a, a totally at variance to what, what you've just said, you know, that for for them, yeah. the state still needs to be small, regardless of uh, the the situation, regardless of whether um, state intervention might actually do some level of good, because uh, the state fundamentally is a bad thing. Um, but we are here at Mid-Atlantic. We're doing a recording on Clubhouse <laughs> with our friend Ian Dale, who's gonna, who's been talking about Margaret Thatcher. And we do have some friends on stage, John Piotr and Justin. And we're going to eventually pivot away from looking at Margaret Thatcher, um, dare I say, the most important British prime minister since 1945. Of so that, there is no doubt. Um, and that hurts me being a Labour supporter, because I think Clem Attlee should actually have that accolade, but he doesn't have it in the popular consciousness of us Brits. That is that is true.
3: Um well, that, that's, quite an, that's quite an interesting thing you've just said there, because if there was a poll of British academics, political academics conducted recently, and they universally put Clement Attlee at the top of the prime ministerial league table over Margaret Thatcher. Um, but then when you think that only 15% of political academics vote conservative, I suppose that may be, that may be the reason. I but I mean, he, he was a transformational prime minister, just as she was. You could argue that tony blair was and possibly not quite so much in a way harold wilson was um uh, what, what we've lost i think and i mean okay you could you could if you really wanted to make an argument to say boris johnson might be seen as a transformational prime minister in the end partly because of brexit um but it's probably too early to tell that right
2: um i know that piota um has said exactly said to me exactly what you just said about that uh that poll uh piotr, do you want to just quickly jump in set us a scene in terms of um that poll that academic poll piotr and then also maybe just run through the top five of british prime ministers and then we'll come back on to ian and we'll do the end of thatcher then we'll pivot to uh modern british politics piotr
1: absolutely royfield thank you and great uh, great to be here with you Ian. Um, Yeah, no, this poll was done at the beginning of July. um, And it was a very interesting uh, result, really, because the academics primarily, uh, Attlee came out with a mean score of about 8.3. And Margaret Thatcher was close behind at about 7.8, with Tony Blair chipping at her heels with with 7.7. And then Harold Wilson was on 6.5, and then Harold Macmillan on 6.1. So those were the top five. Um, what I do think is interesting, though, is as you go down, uh, these surveys have been taken every uh, every few years, and Attlee has consistently ranked uh, about eight and a half out of ten at the top. Uh, Thatcher has been, since uh, the 2010 survey, which was done, uh, he, she's remained in second, and her score's actually increased from about 6.9 to 7.8. Um, and Blair has been, has been very... Um, uh, very consistent as well. And I think that's given you know, his effort to employ the third way uh, during the 1990s with the, with the Clinton administration. Interestingly, uh, Churchill, as one of the obviously most uh, famous um, post-war prime ministers, has actually been slipping down the rankings. And I think that this is indicative of the generational change as we're seeing it. And, and this is something I wanted to touch upon, which is uh, when you look at uh, a question was asked, to what extent do you think each prime minister had a positive or negative impact on and then there were things like British society, British economy, foreign policy or Britain's place in the world, uh, their own political party and then British democracy uh, slash constitution. And in, in in a domestic sense, I think this is indicative of how I think, because uh, my own father, who's from Russia, uh, uh, looked at Thatcher as a huge, uh, he admired her and he still does. And I asked him what he thought of her just in for this uh, for this podcast and he said, it was just the iron-fistedness and, and ruthlessness that we, as the Soviets, uh, admired, that she was unwilling to compromise Britain's position in the world. And you can see that because Margaret Thatcher's, uh, she got 36% of the vote, uh, um, whilst in the British society she got minus 67 Whilst Tony Blair, for example, got 64% for British society, uh, but mine is 17 for foreign policy, which will probably likely be heavily related to the Iraqi war and Afghan war. So uh, there's a, it's very interesting how I think foreignly or uh, outside, externally, uh, Thatcher was viewed much more favorably than she was internally by many of her own constituents. Um, and, and then, I mean, Theresa May, in this poll, as I'm sure you're aware, was was lambasted by, um, by much of the British uh, society. And I think that the final point I want to touch upon is is opera, um, is the Iranian embassy event in 1980, uh, because I think that that was a, a major um, Operation Nimrod. I think it was a, a massive um, moment for, uh, for Margaret Thatcher so early on in her term. Um, and it was a place for, along with the War, for the, for the British to, to really sort of emphasize that we, we don't want to be, you know, we may not be the power we once were, but we haven't disappeared. Uh, and, and this, you know, Operation Nimrod was broadcast live. It was the first, I think, siege by a, an international sort of uh, uh, international terror incident, which was live on broadcast on BBC and ITV. And I remember it was watching it. And it was, no, and my mother was in West London, near the embassy at the time, and she was, uh, she was this is bizarre. Um, and, yeah, so, no, I, I, think, I think that event in itself is not given enough attention, attention. Um, in the earlier phases of um, uh, Thatcher's uh, uh, Minister, uh, Prime Minister Kenya. Um, but I think it did have an impact on how people perceived her, both abroad and uh, domestically.
2: I I think you're right, Piotr. And I I remember watching that as well. It was, it was a newsflash. I I forget exactly what the show was. And at the time, I know Coronation Street, whatever. And it was a newsflash and you saw the explosion at the embassy and these guys in black suits, uniforms went in. It's the first time I'd ever heard of the SAS. You know, it was, you know, this was um, our elite kind of covert force and you saw them live on tv you know it's like you know it's like something out of 24 thinking about it now uh, but you, we, everybody saw that on their tvs ian let's go to the denouement let's go to the end uh, of thatcher uh we have the poll tax riots and then tell us about the maneuvering that the uh, Conservative Party does to oust her from power, and then let's take one last look at her legacy, and then let's move forward to contemporary British politics, because you know you you host this show was it four four days a week you're on LBC? Yeah. Well, so there you go. So we need to have your handle on Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, uh, the state of the British uh, nation, uh, as well as looking backwards. So let's deal with the end of Thatcher. Um, take us through uh, the poll tax riots. Take us through um, the manoeuvring and uh, the start of the premiership of John Major. And then let's jump jump forward to 2021.
3: Well, there were all sorts of reasons for her fall, but let, let's just go through briefly a few of them. The, the, the poll tax or community charge, as she wanted it called, was certainly an element Um the, we used to have a system of local government finance called rates and it was so unfair and old-fashioned and all politicians had basically given up trying to reform it but she had slayed a lot of dragons and she wanted to slay this one and unfortunately came up with the wrong solution and it took her well she never really reconciled to herself to the fact that she had come up with the wrong solution so she tried it out in scotland first which didn't go down well there as you can imagine. And then there were these riots in what April 1990, I think it was. Trafalgar Square was basically a war zone. I mean, terrible, terrible scenes. Cars were set on fire. Not the not the kind of scene you want to see in central London. A lot of Tory MPs were incredibly shocked by this. And bear in mind that a lot of those MPs had very marginal seats, and they were worried about losing them at the next election. And when politicians are worried about losing an election, what do they do? They look to get a new leader. Uh, And Then there was also the issue of Europe, which the the Conservative Party had always been a pro-European party uh, or pro-EEC as it then was. Um, She had become increasingly frustrated with dealing with the European um, economic community and and she didn't get on particularly well with most of the – or a lot of the leaders – um, and she made a speech in 1988 in Bruges which was considered to be very anti-European. Um, I think that's slightly exaggerated and if you, if you read it back now it actually um, reads rather well in terms of warning what, what might happen if this road to more integration continued. But again when Geoffrey Howe resigned. And Nigel Lawson over her approach to Europe, that was a massive blow. When you lose your Chancellor and uh, well, ex-Foreign Secretary, who was leader of the Commons at the time, um, over the issue of Europe, and you don't take note of this and maybe tweak your approach to it, um, expect a lot of trouble. And they were they were MPs who were or ministers who were very popular among Conservative MPs. And everyone knew that she had treated Geoffrey Howe particularly badly in cabinet meetings, in cabinet committees. Um, She would treat him like a recalcitrant schoolboy, talk down to him, patronise him, bully him, some would say. And all of these things came together. The economy wasn't doing particularly well. Inflation was on the rise again. And um, the the consensus among Conservative MPs was was that something needed to change. There there was a challenge to her in 1989, which she saw off relatively easily, but she didn't heed the warnings. And um, so when the end came, it was relatively quick. And um, she found it incredibly difficult to deal with because as far as she was concerned, uh, the, the country was in the middle of a conflict in Kuwait. Um, the, she felt that she was at the height of her powers and she could not understand why people were turning against her, particularly her cabinet, when she called them in one by one for them to give her th- their opinions. She couldn't believe that they were telling her that she needed to go. Not everyone did, but most of them did and um so she she went and um she she went out in typical style though she had to reply to a no confidence debate in the house of commons on the day that she resigned and she absolutely wiped the floor with neil kinnock the opposition leader it was one of the greatest parliamentary performances i think anybody's ever seen and it, it's worth it if you uh, look it up on youtube uh, it was it's it is quite astonishing how she managed to deliver that speech given the emotional turmoil that must have been going on in her head. Because it was, I mean, there's that famous picture of the day that she left Downing Street on the 28th of November 1990, where she almost breaks down when she says a few words outside. And then she gets in the car and looks and sees her staff in the windows. And she then turns her head and looks into the flashbulbs, and there are tears running down her face. And, I mean, there were people outside Downing Street cheering, sort of the the Witch is Dead was being chanted. And, I mean, that was an example of how divisive she was, whereas some of us probably shed a tear with her that day, but there were many people in the country who were cheering the day they thought they'd never seen. Mm. That speech,
2: that performance on her last date is something for the ages you're completely right and she laughs at one point doesn't she says i'm enjoying this i'm enjoying this and all (laughs) of the tory mps are on a roaring you know and you think bloody hell half of you just stabbed her in the back and whatever
3: but yeah and they they were probably thinking what have we done it because the, that's what the rest of the world thought. They could not understand it.
2: Absolutely. Now, um, I couldn't clip that down fast enough uh, right. before, we reco- we, before we started doing this, Ian. But what I do have, I'm just going to go back to the dark days of the early start of her premiership, where she gives a speech to the Conservative Party conference when everybody's telling her to change course.
4: To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U turn, I have only one thing to say. U turn if you want to. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. <laughs>
2: And that's really the way that we kind of remember her premiership. When I was kind of putting together the clips, I thought to myself, I think she's the first British politician um, that made a virtue out of not being at least outwardly consensual. She basically said, no, I'm doing this. It's going to be right in the end. I'm doing this and it was very much at variance with with my politics and and I think with um with the tenor of the country beforehand you know we'd had as you mentioned you know Ted Heath Ted Heath was a conservative uh, prime minister he'd nationalized in industries but no she was sticking to her guns and I think that's just a, a fitting way really to end end this segment so we are listening to mid atlantic uh, the podcast and uh, we recorded this live on um on Clubhouse, with our friend uh, Ian Dale. And we're going to move uh, forward now to contemporary British politics. On stage, we have John Goodison, we have Piotr, who you've heard before, and we have our friend Justin Higgins from Politics uh, 101. And and we have Sylvan Golden, uh, who has been holding his hand up for quite some time. going to invite you on stage. If you're in the audience and you do have a question for Ian, uh, now is the time to hold your hand up and we will pull you up on stage. Um Ian, I kind of said in my rambling preamble that every British Prime Minister since Thatcher in some ways defined by Thatcher. How how true is that for our present Prime Minister Boris Johnson?
3: Um, I think Margaret Thatcher would have been horrified by Boris Johnson in, in many ways. Um, although she was quite, she was much more liberal in her um, tolerance of personal misdemeanors, I think even she might have found Boris's activities a little bit too difficult to swallow. Um, she would she wouldn't have admired his penchant for U-turns. It, it has to be said. The problem with Margaret Thatcher was that she was an impossible act to follow. John Major found it incredibly difficult. I mean, but he was prime minister for six and a half years. And I think history will be a lot kinder to him than than maybe people are now. It's very difficult for anybody to follow uh, a successful prime minister gordon brown found that when he succeeded tony blair and there are lots of other examples throughout history where somebody comes in at the wrong place at the wrong time james callaghan who we talked about earlier he succeeded harold wilson who had been prime minister for eight years albeit with a gap and he was just he, he had everything he, he ought to have been a very successful prime minister he'd been chancellor foreign secretary home secretary and he had disastrous three years because he was the wrong place in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Boris Johnson, we don't know yet whether he was in the right place at the right time. If you look at the Covid response, the consensus would probably be, no, he wasn't in the right place at the right time. He expected to be go, going down in history as the man that took us out of the European Union. Um, he may go down in history as the Covid prime minister. But uh, as I say, you, you can't really judge it until we know when his premiership has finished.
2: How can we judge, considering we live in such extraordinary times, how can we judge the performance of Keir Starmer and the Labour Party right now?
3: Well, I have probably, you'll be surprised to hear this, I have a bit of sympathy for Keir Starmer because I think to become leader of the opposition the week that the country goes into lockdown is a pretty difficult thing to recover from. Nobody's interested in new policies from Labour at the moment. They say they are. The media say they are. But frankly, if he brought out some sort of very attractive new policies now, who would even notice? So he can't really do that until the pandemic's over. So, And he had a very good first um, seven or eight months as leader. But since Christmas, Something seems to have gone wrong um he He's lost his mojo I think he's he's never the most entertaining of people he hasn't He's got a slight charisma bypass but then again, if you look at American presidents, if you look at British prime ministers, when you have a charismatic prime minister or president, they 're often followed by a dull one. And then, followed by a charismatic one, so I mean at least he 's got that in his favour that it might be his turn based on the fact that people might be a bit fed up of boris johnson 's um, charisma. They might quite like somebody who just looks a bit competent, a bit like Major after Thatcher, I suppose, a bit like Brown after blair um, so i don 't write him off yet I, I think the that people on the left who are already gunning for him and saying that he should be replaced well fair enough okay you can say he hasn't done well enough but there's no king or queen over the water that would automatically do a lot better than he would you don't solve a party's problems just by getting rid of the leader and the labor party has massive problems regardless of who uh, the leader is um so i i cut him a little bit more slack than many people do
2: now, uh, I've mentioned it before. We do have a, a little bit of a now crowded stage, uh, so I'm going to come to a friend of the pod. He's been on a, a few times, John Goodison. Uh, it's your time, sir. What's your question?
5: You know, I really enjoyed listening to Ian challenge some of the conventional wisdom about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you know, he he was challenging uh, uh, whether uh, the working class was as staunchly opposed to her policies as has been suggested. Uh, he challenged uh, whether the source of her popularity uh, was so closely linked to the Falkland mm-hmm. War. And uh, although Ian did address it a little bit, I was really interested to kind of hear Ian's thoughts about the way that we should think about the relationship between Thatcher and Europe. Um, I know that certainly many Euroskeptics, uh, there's a bit of crossover uh, with uh, Thatcher uh, myth-making and Thatcher worship. Uh, to be crude. <laughs> Uh, But at the same time, you know, many have characterized Margaret Thatcher as one of the authors of the European single market. Uh, So I'm wondering, especially given uh, Ian's contrarian streak, whether he has an interesting perspective on how we should really think about Thatcher and the European Union. I know that we talked a little bit about the Bruges uh, speech, but um, as we consider figures like Jacob Rees-Mong, for example, who have tried to take up the mantle of Thatcher in their public persona, Uh, What would Thatcher think about their attitude towards the issues of trade, for example?
3: Well, you're absolutely right. She was um, the main architect of the single market in 1986. Although she, she was right from the start frustrated with uh, Europe in the sense that she thought that Britain was contributing far too much in terms of uh, our contributions. We were at that point not one of the richer countries in Europe, and yet we were paying more than any other country into the uh, coffers apart from, uh, apart from Germany. And she was quite successful in um, negotiating to change that. I don't think the idea of leaving the European community would have entered her head. Uh, and I'm I'm not convinced that she would have necessarily been a brexiteer. You see, th- this is another one of the myths that she was such a conviction politician that she couldn't be pragmatic. She was incredibly pragmatic. You look at the manifestos, particularly 1979. There, there was hardly a commitment in it. I mean, there, there was a direction of travel. Uh, But she was incredibly pragmatic. One of my first jobs was um, as a public PR person for the ports industry in this country. And there was a piece of labor legislation which gave Dockers um, uh, uh, enhanced employment rights. And it was strangling some of the ports that were... Because they they actually couldn't, even if they didn't have the business, they couldn't um, make Dockers redundant. It was just impossible. And she was very afraid of repealing this piece of legislation in case it provoked a dock strike, whereas everyone thinks that she went rampaging around the economy, trying to provoke a conflict with any, any trade union that she could. Absolutely not. And it, and although she was quite confrontational with, with uh, Europe in, in, in many ways, I don't think that she would have considered herself, certainly um, before the mid-1990s, as somebody who would even describe herself as to use today's terms a a eurosceptic she 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 supported the maastricht treaty deal which john major did although she came to regret that i think Um, and she made increasingly strident speeches about europe but i i'm not convinced that she would have necessarily been at the forefront of the brexit movement because um you mentioned trade there she was a great supporter of free trade and obviously free trade within Europe was one of the main, well, was the main reason for joining the EEC back in 1973. So I think she would have um, had to reconcile coming out of the, out of the European Union as it then became with the ine- inevitable consequences for free trade with the bloc. Now she might've seen the advantages of being able to do our own trade deals with, with other countries. That is certainly true. Um, and, I mean, she, w- she would certainly have come under a lot of pressure had she still been alive um, in 2016 to uh, at least give her name to the Leave campaign. But um, I'm poss- I'm probably only about 55 percent convinced that she might have done. I think there's a big doubt about whether she would have done that.
5: I, I think this is such an interesting conversation in the contemporary context because um, and Ian, I'm curious if you agree with me, but it seems as though in contemporary anglo conservative thought there are there are twin or uh, pillars uh, one being uh, economic liberalism and then one being sovereignty and the prioritization of national sovereignty and in the conversation around brexit and the eu relationship we see these two uh, twin pillars of contemporary conservatism in direct conflict yeah. um, i think that it was really this week that uh, a figure for the british government for the first time introduced a phrase into the parlance that will perhaps become more and more remarked, which is the concept of Brexit red tape. Uh, Because indeed, uh, as we're witnessing with the uh, disputes over the Northern Ireland protocol, uh, leaving the European Union, uh, although it gave Britain more control over its uh, uh, trading relationship around the world, theoretically at least, um, it has also introduced a large number of regulatory barriers even within uh, the United Kingdom's own territorial boundaries. Uh, So in a way, although uh, the Brexit campaigners argued again and again that uh, the initiative was based on a desire to uh, relieve the regulatory burden of EU commission directives, um, it has resulted in the introduction of an incredible amount of new red tape.
3: Well, up to a point. I mean, if if you if you're in Northern Ireland and you want to import stuff from the rest of Great Britain, uh, you you are right. Now, hopefully that will be resolved over time. If you, if you want to export into Great Britain and Northern Ireland, there's no problem at all. Um, so I, I think that's a slight exaggeration of the position that you've put there. But the, the thing that people constantly get wrong, pe- particularly those who were on the Remain side of the argument, they just looked at it from an economic point of view. That's not what Brexiteers did. Brexiteers um, thought that there would be some economic gains, but the, the sovereignty issue was just as important, and it, it wasn't all about whether we would be economically better off. And a lot of people said, well, if we lose a couple of points on GDP, and we can actually make our own laws again, and there have been quite a few examples now of where we have been able to do things like ban the export of live animals, which we would not have been able to do had we still been members of the European Union. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to refight all of the Brexit arguments, but a- again, that there are, some, there are more nuances here than some of the headlines sometimes suggest i
2: think also uh, i i completely agree with you Ian. that there is no way that margaret thatcher uh, if you read back uh, the speech that she gave uh, when she was railing against europe that she actually should have been a brexiteer what she was always keen to do is to rein in uh The European Union, Uh, but she wanted to remain a part of it and she wanted, dare I say, a certain level of British exceptionalism. The other thing to remember about Margaret Thatcher, she was born in 1925. So she was 20 uh, at uh, VE Day, at the end of the Second World War. So she was part of that generation. That were very much shaped by European conflict, and one of the key uh, motives for setting up the uh, the European Economic Community was to stop future conflict. You know, so she was very much of that of that generation. She understood that not only was this going to be a trading space, but this was a space which is actually going to uh, dampen down conflict. And if you look at all the things that she said about a united Germany, when that wall came down, she did not want a united Germany, which feels very weird to us now because she oh. remembered, you know, in her formative years when Germany dominated central europe actually what it meant so she was very much against german reunification so i, I couldn't agree with you more well, and, I mean.
3: and, and, and the interesting thing there is even though she had a definite view she held a seminar at checkers with all the leading a- Germ- sort of german ac- well not german but experts in german affairs uh, academics historians to try and inform herself about germany a bit more um, so she didn't it wasn't just this sort of knee jerk emotional reaction against the United Germany. She did actually consult a lot of experts. And again, this is a side of her that very few people ever saw. She would call in um sort of scientific experts which I, she did on climate change for example um so it, it wasn't just her deciding right this is going to be the policy i mean she i think she made a massive misjudgment on german unification but i say that as somebody who studied german at university and lived there for some time so maybe my views were sli- slightly skewed on it but um she definitely got that wrong
2: uh sylvan uh, you've been waiting quite some time to uh, speak your piece now's your time sir Thank you very much, Ian, um, and
6: thank you, thank you, uh, um, Yeah, there's um, as with uh, Clubhouse, uh, you you think uh, you you'd like to intervene at a particular point in the discussion, then the discussion rolls on. <laughs> um, but I, I I just want to say that um, it's great to see um, Ian Dale on on Clubhouse, and I also need to say. That since um, Clubhouse, my uh, listening to LBC has been severely limited. Oh dear! I have to say. Um, and yet, I always uh, enjoyed listening to you um, on LBC. Um, I, I wonder. I wonder if you would uh, agree with me that if ever there was a moment of um, pure political theatre, it was the time when Jeffrey Howe delivered that incredibly um, famous speech uh, on the house that led to um, Margaret Thatcher's downfall. And um, because that unleashed all sorts of things. Um, and um, the, the, the thing that I can remember about the speech is um, when Jeffrey Howe said, Well, you know, you, you, you sent me into bat only to, um, I think, um, uh, what, um, something about taking his creases away or something. No, I, bro- no what what,
0: what, she,
3: what Yeah, what he yes. said was that she sent him to the crease uh, and only to find that his bat had been broken by the team captain.
6: Indeed, and 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 that set of a trail trail of action, you know, with um, unleashing, for instance, um, um, Hasseltine. and of course that was the first time, you know, we also learnt uh, quite a lot about the workings of the uh, the, um, the the 1922 committee, for instance, and that was pretty extraordinary. So, you know. The, um, and 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 for me, my um, you know, for having having lived and in, in fact having campaigned for the Liberal Party in nineteen seventy nine when when Thatcher came in, um, uh, that was uh, an extraordinary turn of uh, political events, and it was ex- extraordinary to to live through those moments in in the UK. And I wonder if you'd
3: you'd, you'd agree that there were, that was pure political theatre. Well, it was. And I think if you talk to anyone um, of my age or around there, it's probably the biggest moment in Parliament. I mean, I'm sure we can come up with lots of others, but everyone remembers that speech. She didn't think Geoffrey Howe had it in him to make a speech like that. And she instantly recognised how devastating it was, I think. Um, And I mean, there, there were quite a lot of key moments during her premiership in the house of commons very memorable ones but it's interesting that you said that you were campaigning for the liberal party in 1979 because um i had been uh, i became a member of the liberal party in 1978 but only for 6 months until i heard that speech in 19, at the 1978 conservative conference because in a way i i've always thought of myself as sort of a classic gladstonian liberal um sort of laissez-faire economics and a a relatively social liberal outlook and um it's always been a constant source of amusement to me that the the liberal party or now the liberal democrats as they have become have become actually a very illiberal party um but that's sort of maybe a subject for another occasion
2: Thank you for that uh, question, Sylvan. Uh, Justin Higgins, um, you are uh, famed uh, on these clubhouse hallways, sir. You run the biggest political uh, room in clubhouse. Do you have a question for Ian Dale?
7: Sure, um, Ian. So pardon my uh, ignorance. As a young child, I actually traveled over on an exchange to England to visit Parliament when I was in sixth grade here. So that's like 12 years old, and it was absolutely fantastic seeing the halls of such a storied uh, government. And my question is kind of intertwined with the U.S. and U.K. politics. So I remember I worked for the Republican National Committee before myself switching parties and becoming a Democrat. But I worked on the 2016 campaign in the RNC um, handling national media messaging. And I remember we were all watching uh, with bated breath as Brexit happened, and I was thinking, "Wow, a lot of idiots voted for Brexit. This is going to bode well for President Trump in this election." And then at the RNC, we had um, the uh, very colorful and at times offensive Nigel Farage walking around um, our our halls as the the you know President Trump was kind of giving his speech. So I guess my question is: there seems to be a very big common thread, whether it be Steve Bannon, whether it be Trumpism, (laughs) Nigel Farage, between the far-right conservative movement in the United States and the people that support Boris Johnson in the UK. Could you go into whether there's any type of common threads between these movements? Um, and, And specifically... Uh, What do you think of uh, uh, when you see your politicians over here getting involved in in our politics, uh, specifically uh, supporting somebody as just contemptible as, as President Trump, what do you think?
2: Uh,
3: just, i think your dog do, i think your dog agrees well, with exactly
2: you. and just before you answer that um justin this would not be a, a clubhouse uh room which has you as part of it if your dog wasn't barking in the background but anyway <laughs> ian answer away sir well,
3: well i've got two dogs here and they're being very well behaved at the moment i think that the relationship between the conservative party and the republican party has been um, a very close one over the years but it is completely shattered now where Um, moderate conservatives in this country cannot associate themselves with the Republican Party. And this was happening way before Donald Trump. Um, I would have always voted Republican had I been an American until 2008. And it was the advent of the Tea Party just made me think this this is not a political party anymore. It's a quasi-religious sect. So I moved away from the Republican Party at that point. And um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a great fan of the Democratic Party either, but I, w- I would have voted for Barack Obama. I would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I would have reluctantly voted for Joe Biden last time. Uh, and I think that's where most of the... Conservative Party in this country is now. Now, there there, there um, has always been a sort of Tea Party streak to the Conservative Party here. When I was a student in the 1980s, um, the Federation of Conservative Students was divided between the Wets and the Libertarians. And Libertarians were way out there. I mean, I didn't really think that they ought to be describing themselves themselves as Conservatives. Um, and I think the wh- when you look at how the Republican Party has behaved on various social issues, on gay rights, on abortion and all sorts of other things, it, it no longer speaks to... The conservatives in this country but of course the word conservative can mean many different things to many different people uh, and a, a conservative in in england is not the same as a conservative in the u.s by any stretch of the imagination there will be if you draw a venn diagram there will be an overlap but that overlap has become very very small over the years um, so i i feel your pain in the way that you've had to change uh, your political affiliations, um, I would have been doing the same. My best friend in the States, um, uh, I remember I've been to various Republican meetings with him, but he could not abide Trump and, um, and voted Democrat for the first time in, in 2016 and did so last time. The challenge for the Republican Party now is to recover its soul, because it's lost its soul to the extremists.
7: I, I vote for everybody on stage, Ian, just to really put this point home, I was working again on the election, and I voted for Clinton in 2016 just because of how scary Trump was.
2: Uh, I want to kind of touch on this point of um, U.S. conservative politics and U.K., because my gut is completely to agree with you, Ian, in that... There is a there's a strain of British conservatism which is um, on our political spectrum, obviously still on the right, but compared to the American political s- spectrum, it's to the left. You know, the the One Nation Tories that would have been called etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, back back in the day. But I was kind of shocked by the elections bill. Of 2021, which was introduced in June. And if enacted, it would require voters to show voter ID in polling stations for UK parliamentary elections, local elections in England. This is a way of enacting voter suppression in the United States. And I remember ad nauseum telling my American friends that such a thing wouldn't go down in Britain, because we don't even need legally to carry ID. Whether you're driving your car or not, you don't need to have your driving license on you. And this was a key part of one of our British freedoms that we that we don't have to have an ID. And I was kind of shocked that this this uh, law, which is sweeping through many states in America, which is a way of disenfranchising poor. And black voters, who overwhelmingly vote Democratic, has been taken up by by the Conservative Party in the UK. This is a, a direct way that the Conservative Party are looking at contemporary American politics and and taking uh, what, what one of their um, w- you know one of their kind of uh, political totems.
3: Couldn't disagree with oh, you please more. Please do go. I'm totally, I'm totally in, totally in favour of it. Um, and, and this has been an argument in British politics for. Decades, not just over the last few years. Uh, most countries in the world, you have to show some sort of ID to vote. This is not an unusual thing to do. In Northern Ireland, you have to show ID to vote. Nobody's saying that there's been voter suppression there because the turnout in Northern Ireland is actually higher than it is in the rest of the United Kingdom generally. So, I, I really don't buy. No, no, Ian, that, Ian, no, that, no, no. That I, it, I, it leads I, to I, voter I, suppression.
2: I think no, no, no. In the states they're bringing it in as a way of suppressing poor and black votes. So there is is no question of that. Many Republican operatives have been heard saying it's exactly what what, what it will do. Uh, But I don't believe it's the same thing within the United Kingdom. But I just see it as a policy uh, which feels like this is our Conservative Party looking at what the American Conservative Parties do and and aping their policies. But if you're telling me it's... uh,
3: I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what's driven this. I, I present on LBC, for the last four general elections, I've presented uh, the station's election overnight programme. And every single election, I get people tweeting, texting, phoning in, saying, I haven't been able to vote today because when I went to the polling station, somebody had already voted in my name and they wouldn't let me vote. Now, the argument goes, yes, but that's only sort of 6,000, I don't know where they come up with this figure, that's only about 6,000 people in each election. Well, bear in mind in some constituencies, the, the margin of victory can be two votes. Just imagine how you would feel if you had been denied your vote because somebody had somehow managed to vote in your place now if you have to show id some and and if if somebody hasn't got a passport or a driving licence, they've, they've got a scheme in Northern Ireland where you can just get um, uh, uh, go down to your local government office and they will give you an, uh, an ID to show to the polling clerks. Now, OK, you can say, well, that suppresses vote, votes because somebody has to do something extra in order to vote. Well, a vote is an important thing. You should have to get up off your fat backside and go down to the polling station and, and vote or vote by post or whatever, I think a vote is such a precious thing that it should not be abused by people. And if it is, you need to find ways of stopping that happening. And that, to my mind, is what this legislation does. Uh, We're talking about two slightly different things here.
2: I think from a British perspective. You brought it up. (laughs) But no, but on the back of Justin's question, that is there a symbiosis between policies on the right side of American politics and policies on the, the right side of British politics. That's where I came at this from. I actually, well, okay. I actually well, one me, second, I don't actually believe that at its core, uh, with the proposed conservative legislation, that voter suppression is part of it. I actually don't believe that, but it is definitely part of the calculus on some American states where to get uh, your ID is much more of a hurdle than it is within the United Kingdom because of the size of the country. There are DMVs, which is one of the key places that people go to get their ID in America, which are deliberately away from population centers. So to go and get it from, let's say, point a in texas to go and pick up your 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 driving license is 60 odd miles that that that, it's Mm. completely different within the united kingdom but there is a calculus over there in the states where this does at the margins suppress democratic votes and that's the point i was making is i'm not saying that the conservative party are trying to do that within the uk but it's just strange for me that this drive for voter IDs, which is fraught with a whole load of issues, which does put a, a higher hurdle for poorer people in the United States to be able to vote, um, that we have um, a parallel bit of legislation coming in within the United Kingdom. I actually wasn't aware until this uh, act w- was formulated that actually in Northern Ireland, you needed ID. To vote and I said to myself but that mm. makes sense that makes because of the history of Northern Ireland it made sense but still the size of our countries makes that going to get your ID is is very different from trying to get it in the in the United States and then they do things in, in the states like in Texas if you have a, a gun license that is good enough to be to be ID you know which again tips the balance socioeconomically as to who has got ID. So, but anyway, it, oh, oh, it, it absolutely does. It absolutely does.
3: Real, real quick, Roy, Roy, well, Roy poor, poor people Roy, don't own guns? Are you seriously trying to tell me? But
2: but student but, but student.
3: But pieces, student uh, but that yeah, would be
2: voter suppression. But then, but then, oh. Ian, they say that student ID doesn't count, which is photo ID.
7: So, so Roy Field, St- Stacey Abrams, noted conservative Stacey Abrams, Ian. I'm I'm joking around. She is considered the foremost of voting rights in the democratic party called it quote unquote conservative talking point and a fallacy that progressives are against voter ID. And I just want to really highlight that. No, and,
2: and Justin, um, and, I, and I think Justin, and I think that is correct. But ID. what you have to do is make it easier for all Americans to get ID. And, and that's what, not what some of these it, proposed laws are trying to do. But anyway, let's move on. Joe Manchin's law does not. Okay. I'm just saying I'm just hearing a lot of
7: talking points that I don't think really comport with the reality. Well, uh, Uh, can I introduce
2: a let's Let's move on. I believe, just to end this and just to move on, as long as all Americans, regardless of income level, can get ID easily, there is not a problem with this. At the moment, it is not a level playing field for all Americans, is the point. And many Republican political operatives know this. We're going to go to Tamin. we've got a room for uh, politics. Yeah, exactly. Right, uh, we're going to, we're going to <laughs> move on to Tamin. Tamin, you've been waiting a long time uh, to uh, raise your point.
8: Thank you very much uh, for the host and the moderators and for Ian for sharing his insights. It's been really useful. I'm going to bring it back to Thatcher. So... I grew up in Belfast, and I guess Margaret Thatcher is associated with certain things in terms of the Irish conflict. I have a kind of a mini theory that actually she has played a big role in ending the conflict in Ireland, one way advertently and one way inadvertently. So in terms of how she advertently brought about the end of the conflict, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, I think, played a significant role in paving the way for the Good Friday Agreement by granting the future, the status of Northern Ireland to the people there democratic vote which was something that was key to the good friday agreement i guess inadvertently i would say maybe she she played a significant role by denying the political prisoners if we want to call them that in uh, well essentially the ira prisoners their political status which led them to go on hunger strike and her i guess steeliness in the face of that that led to bobby sands you know approaching death and being elected as an mp caused Shin on and the IRA to change their strategy and to start focus on elect start focusing on electoral politics. So I think she played a big role in in seeing that happen. And I guess my question for Ian then is: I don't know. I, I wasn't here for all of the room, but I was here for a considerable part of it. I didn't hear you mention her legacy in Northern Ireland, and if I if if that was missed, I'm I'm wondering then what is that because we you, I guess people in England don't see. That- Thatcher's actions in Ireland as being significant or was it just not on the topic tonight and uh, just kind of what what what's the take in England in terms of Thatcher's actions in, in terms of the Irish conflict, thank you very much
3: Well I think that's a really interesting question and I, I was actually going to mention Northern Ireland when I was talking about how she was much more pragmatic than people thought but then the thought went out of my head again but I, let me mention that now because um she was a great one uh, as most world leaders would be in saying we do not negotiate with terrorists but right from in fact probably before the anglo-irish agreement in 1985 and certainly between then and when she left office in 1990 we know that she had authorized back channels with the ira um now how significant they were I, i i don't know enough about that to to judge whether that was really a significant um moment in terms of what happened later but certainly john tony blair always pays tribute to john major for his role in starting the peace process i would argue from what i know and as i say, i'm not an expert on this but i would argue that it started with her now she i think she was seen as somebody who was Um, A very divisive figure in the whole issues in Northern Ireland, particularly, as you mentioned, the hunger strikes. Um, And it played into her reputation as being the Iron Lady and, and not compromising. And she certainly didn't compromise then. But um, then you had the Brighton bomb in 1984, and if I can just deviate from that a second, um, in about 2012, I was standing outside the main BBC building in um, London, and a friend of mine walked up and said, oh, I want you to meet Patrick, and I shook this guy's hand And I thought, I know that face from somewhere. And it turned out to be Patrick McGee, the guy who planted the bomb in the Grand Hotel in Brighton. But I I only clocked that after I'd walked away. And I felt as if I wanted to have a shower. Um, I can't tell you how sort of dirty it made me feel to have shaken that man's hand because I mean well we all know what happened there and I I think the Sunday after that happened she was in church and she thought to herself this was the day that I wasn't meant to see and she was within an inch of being killed in that as were many members of her cabinet and and I think that I I don't know what effect that had on her long-term but it may have had the opposite effect to um, maybe what the what the intention was, because I think it made her think about Northern Ireland a lot more. Um, maybe she realised that at some point the conflict had to be brought to an end, and therefore she needed that there needed to be some level of interaction with the nationalists, whether it was through the elected representatives or or the others um uh, and i think well we ended up with a good friday agreement which i mean in many ways she would have been horrified by sort of having to let terrorists out on both sides of the uh, divide it would have been an absolute anathema to her and i don't think she could have um i don't think she could have done that agreement i think it would have been one step too far for her but if you notice i don't think she spoke out against it which probably says all you need to know just on your point about people in England not really being interested in Northern Ireland, I, uh, if you've never listened to my radio show, I mean, we do an awful lot on Northern Ireland, I think more than any other radio show I- I- in Great Britain. And um, I mean, last week I did an hour-long phone-in on Will... Ireland ever be reunited? And the response to that was astonishing, not just from people in Northern Ireland and the Republic, but also throughout the rest of the United Kingdom. We were absolutely inundated with calls, texts, tweets, and it, it's something that I think um because of the all the difficulties with the Northern Ireland Protocol, it, it's really brought home to people what the sensitivities are.
8: Mm. I'm fascinated to hear what the conclusion of your hour-long uh, show on reuni- reunification of Ireland was, do you think it's going to happen now in, in the face of the, the, the stickiness with the EU?
3: I mean, or do you- in short, I think it's a sort of heart versus head thing where I can completely understand anybody in the nationalist community and indeed people in the republic wanting to see a reunited island i I think there might be um, a a small percentage of unionists who actually wouldn't object to it in in many ways but the difficulties in, in it happening i think are Huge, And I've always been of the view that actually the the Republic of Ireland government does not want it to happen because they know that it would mean funneling a huge amount of money into Northern Ireland for many, many, many years. And whether the Irish taxpayer would want that, I do not know. I suspect not. And similarly, for people in Northern Ireland... They're used to having a national health service. Well, there isn't the equivalent of a national health service in the Republic of Ireland, um, and there. Are, so, what, where it's a bit like Brexit in a way. You, you can have this sort of um, idyllic uh, idea of a reunified Ireland, but when you look into the consequences, both for the Republic and for the North for Northern Ireland, it somehow often becomes a little less idyllic. And, and we certainly had callers from the Republic saying, well, yeah, my heart says yes, but my head says no. Mm.
8: Thank you very much. Yeah,
2: listen, uh, Tammy, uh, thank you for a couple of excellent uh, questions. I, I've always been of the, the mind that the, your average English voter, and I'm going to say English as opposed to British here, because I think your average Scottish voter is closer to the problems of Northern Ireland than the average English voter And for me, that was brought out by Brexit in that English politicians didn't really consider the effect that this would actually have on Northern Ireland.
3: That's fair, isn't it? um it didn't form a massive part of the brexit debate on either side actually i don't really remember i mean all of the issues that the remain side bring up about northern ireland now i don't really remember them forming a massive part of the i I think i think that's fair
2: but considering that brexit was always supposed to be about british sovereignty whether we think that it's significant or it, or not that significant. There's been a, uh, there has been a loss of British sovereignty within the constituent or a constituent part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. That that has happened,
3: hasn't it? Yes, it has. Um, I think partly because I mean I can remember. In the aftermath of the referendum, when all of the Brexit negotiations started, it seemed to me that Brussels was weaponising Northern Ireland. And I know that's a, a, an, an unfortunate phrase to use, but um, they, they if you think back to what Martin Selmayer, who was Jean-Claude Juncker's um, chief of staff, he actually said Northern Ireland is the price that Britain is going to have to pay for Brexit. And I, I said at the time, I thought this is a, a disgraceful thing to say, but it represented an attitude where they knew that they could use Northern Ireland as a sort of battering ram in the negotiations. And that's exactly what they did. And the problems that the Northern Ireland Protocol has now, you can absolutely say that they should have been foreseen by the British government. But um, when you, when you look at most of the issues, they ought to be able to be resolved if both sides wish to negotiate... With each other properly, but the EU has said um, we're not renegotiating. We signed the deal six months ago. Whereas, if this if this was a commercial transaction, if you do a deal with a company and then it's not working for both sides, you sit down and you hammer out something different. You don't need to renegotiate the whole thing, but you certainly can negotiate some tweaks. And in the end, that's what will happen. Whether it happens in the next three months or the next three years, I don't know, but. Um, it it will have to happen because the consequences of it not happening are too awful to contemplate. Mm.
2: Uh, To to come on to um, the the, the wider point here that I I can completely see that within 20 years we'll have some level of a a united Ireland. Maybe there'll be some uh, special uh, uh, status for Northern Ireland for a period because yes, I think there's a heart and a head argument just just like Brexit, Ian, that the Irish state does not want to take on the financial uh, burden of Northern Ireland. And, and that is the head, but the heart says, "Of yes, we want a united Ireland. And I think it's really interesting, the ruptures this has created in, in the DUP, um, in the way that they actually feel completely let down by the British government. And they, they, they can't even have a, a political leader now, you know, the amount of ructions have been in that party. And then I, I actually think the cause of unionism within Northern Ireland has been massively weakened by Brexit and also the Republic of Ireland in terms of GDP, is not uh, significantly poorer th- than than the UK, and uh, it's a relatively liberal country. We're not talking about the Ireland of forty years ago, where Catholic priests had a-, a large sway over government policy. This is a liberal uh, democracy, of which shouldn't scare uh, your average unionist. Sorry, Ian.
3: Well. I th- I think that is by and large true. Uh, I think there are two two further points to make here. I think the Republic of Ireland government uh, is the key to what will happen with the Northern Ireland Protocol, and if I was Boris Johnson and Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, now I would be launching the the biggest charm offensive that I've ever launched towards the Irish government. Because I mean, the, the relations between the Irish government and the British government for decades has been, shall we say, um, not particularly brilliant. Possibly better in the Blair years than any other period, uh, but there's always been a slight tension there. Um, but that, but. The Republic of Ireland is going to be key in persuading the European Union that they will need to shift on the protocol. And, and I see signs of that already happening. And I'm told that the – I mean, Simon Coveney, the foreign minister, has got quite a good uh, way with the media. But I'm told that the T-shirt, Michael Martin – Um, actually really does get this, that there there has got to be changes. And I think he's going to be the pivotal figure here. I mean, Northern Ireland has has the best of both worlds then because it's a member of the single market of the United Kingdom and a member of the single market of the EU. And it actually ought to be able to attract far more inward investment into Northern Ireland than maybe will come into the rest of the United Kingdom. But I mean, even that, even if you look at the inward investment figures since we've left the European Union, that they are still absolutely massive. They're far bigger than any other country in the European Union. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that um, in one, one or two years, it's still been more than the rest of the European Union put together. So we, we are not in Northern Ireland could be in a very advantageous position if the Northern Ireland protocol problems are solved.
2: Uh, good point. Uh, and on that note, uh, we're going to come on to Absteruni, I think I pronounced your name correctly, and then and Na- Nabonita. Um, but just before we do that, um, if you are on the stage or in the audience, um, Ian Dale, I had to coax him. at Drag him onto clubhouse, kicking and screaming, uh give him a follow, please, um we want him to be to remain on the app, not just for it to be a one and done with him doing this, so uh please give him a follow um I do these shows. Once, once every two weeks. Um, give me a little follow, or probably even better, go on, try and find the Mid-Atlantic Room, which I didn't put this as part of for a whole load of boring reasons, so I won't tell you about. And you'll be alerted that when we go live, uh, looking at US, UK, and sometimes Canadian politics, it's a bit of a compare and contrast. Um, Abster Rooney, please tell me how to pronounce your name, and then please ask your question.
0: Royfield, thank you very much. So my name is actually Abhay. Um, I changed it to Absaruni just to play around with it, and it's stuck, and I can't change it back. That's, I uh. guess, one of the um, the realities <laughs> of the house. But um, Ian, um, lovely to see you here. I've had the pleasure of speaking to you a couple of times about India, if you may recall, on LBC, and it's always been a pleasure. Um, my mother, who did have the opportunity to work with uh, Margaret Thatcher before my time, on the One Nation Forum has always said very good things about her. There are other um, Indian families who've worked with her in polity, and they've also only ever said good things about her. So I've also learned about her. Tony Blair was really the first prime minister I remember um, consciously. Um, I just about remember the end of the John Major era. But Uh, The things I've heard about Thatcher have made me warm to her. Um, I'm very grateful in many ways for what she's done to the country. Not everyone may agree with that, but I am grateful for what she did for the country, and she's obviously changed the reality of our politics since then. My question to you is actually about a subject which I'm deeply invested in, and that is colonialism. And the, the the real story of colonialism, which is only just coming out, which is very different to what's presented to us at school, and the reality of the post-colonial world. So I'm not talking just about India. I'm talking about Africa, um, the you know the West Indies, um, the whole world basically, most of the world. I mean, where do we stop? Um, Ian, I love Margaret Thatcher, but I want to know from you what was her view of the post-colonial. World and also of the history of it all, and I understand she's she will only be really a product of her time, born in the nineteen twenties. But uh, please do shed some light on that if you if you research that.
3: Um, <laughs> that's a really difficult one because I'm not sure that I can shed any light on it because uh, my generation, uh, I was born in nineteen sixty two, and obviously in the sixties, that was that was really the end of the period when Britain granted independence to all sorts of different countries. So what, 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 when I became interested in politics in the mid-1970s, uh, that, had, that was already behind us. And I remember going to uh, a, a German school when I was on an exchange, and they seemed to be obsessed by Britain's loss of empire and how it was affecting the country. And I was thinking... Well, this isn't the Britain I recognise. It's not not an issue. Why did that? Why do they keep thinking that we're all obsessed by the loss of empire? It's just not not, not that way. Um, and I I can't really tell you much about what her attitudes were. Um, if you think, I suppose the main thing of her premiership in terms of uh, colonialism was when uh, the Lancaster House talks were held in 1979 when she first came to power with Peter Carrington and all the different parties in Rhodesia uh, later becomes Zimbabwe. Um, And I suspect that she saw the inevitability of um, Rhodesian independence and just said to the Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, just go and do it. I don't really want to... I'll get involved if you want me to. But um, I, I think she may have been slightly uncomfortable about giving power to people that she regarded as Marxist, i.e. Mugabe. Now, um, given what's happened to Zimbabwe over the years, um, she probably was right to, to fear that. But um, I don't... She certainly... I mean, people will talk about her attitude to South Africa. And again, there are so many myths about that. And you have to read uh, the books by Robin Rennick, who was our ambassador to South Africa in uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, to see that she was actually a crucial player in persuading the south african government to free nelson mandela which he rec- he recognized contrary to popular rumor and that she was instrumental in helping the south african government move to a, a different way of government now um i mean I, we haven't got time to go into that and i'm not going to say that I'm an expert on it, but I have read quite widely on this. And this, if any of the things that I've said tonight, if people want to go and read a little bit more about, I really would recommend Robin Rennick's books, not just because I published them, but um, he he was there. He saw what she did. He was the link between her and uh, Bota and F.W. de Klerk. And um, I, I, I think... In future, I, I would like to think that her reputation on that issue might be um, rehabilitated a bit, because at the moment, most people in this country think that she was a supporter of apartheid, which she most categorically was not. I must admit,
2: I, I, oh, I I mean,
6: one
3: minute there, um,
2: Sylvan. Oh, a, minute there, Sylvan. Sorry, um, sorry. Just, just quickly, then I'm going to let um, uh, Mr Singh, shall we say, uh, th- then answer. Um, I always thought that she was... Um, very much against uh, Mandela, and that I thought she was noted as actually calling him um, a terrorist. And what what I have always read is that there was consternation in in the British uh, cabinet that she was against uh, sanctions
3: against South Africa and was very pro the Boer well, regime. She was against sanctions in South Africa because she, because she didn't think that they worked, and she didn't think, and she thought they would most adversely affect the very people that they they were supposed to help so um and she was quite obstinate on that you're absolutely right there was a commonwealth heads of government meeting where she was uh, over the top in her sort of derisory words about sanctions and what she'd had to give way on a little bit at that meeting so she certainly gave the impression a different impression to what the reality was but as i say just go and go and read the first-hand accounts of uh, of her impact on uh, getting Mandela released, and he himself paid tribute to her for that. So it's not it's not just me saying that he actually said it himself. Without her, it would have been more difficult for the South African government to have released him when they did.
6: As a um, South African anti-apartheid activist that has been exiled from South Africa um, when I was seventeen, it was the biggest blow um, to to our work um, in the UK um, because we'd, we'd, we'd worked quite hard um, to get to the point of um, the, the discussion of releasing Nelson Mandela from prison. And if there was a nail in the coffin, it was that um, statement by uh, Margaret Thatcher saying that um, he's a th- terrorist. Now, the story is a little bit more complicated, and um, you, you, you are right, uh, Ian, because at the time... Margaret Thatcher was, if you like, fighting the Cold War, if you like, and um, she saw um, the ANC uh, as a communist party. Um, and she also said uh, quite categorically that um, we don't want to see a communist party in South Africa and we don't want to see, um, uh, you know, a communist party uh, using terrorists to get, to, 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 to get change in the country. Um, and the nuances were completely lost in that struggle. And she said she had put a very final nail in, in the coffin and she could have done a lot more a lot earlier. There was also a time when, when Nelson Mandela was released, and um, about uh, five months later, or something, um, and this is in the records that were now released, where she said he, he, he's, a, he's very closed minded as a person. And that was proven to be absolutely false, because if there was ever a person that actually reached out to try and build, if you like, a rainbow nation in South Africa, it was in fact Nelson Mandela. He wasn't at all close-minded, and he wasn't at all you know, committed to the idea of a communist regime. It was, it, you know, it, it was to, to, to achieve change in South Africa. And I'm just wondering if we are rewriting that chapter in, in, in uh,
3: Margaret Thatcher's history. As I say, I, I I'm not going to to pretend that I'm an expert. All I know is uh, the accounts that I've read, particularly from Robin Renick. I don't know if you've read those, books, Sylvan. But I, I really would urge you to, because I think if you haven't, I think it might give you a slightly different take on what on her attitude and what her role was in, in terms of uh, helping at least to bring apartheid to an end. Um, so, yeah.
6: I'm also happy to say
3: that I was then
6: uh, recruited to work in the Nelson Mandela government soon after, which I absolutely enjoyed for
2: for five years. Listen, uh, S- Sylvan, uh, thank you for uh, your input there and, and your insight. Uh, be, being uh, a South African freedom fighter and somebody who took uh, the liberation of their country so seriously that you know that they ha- they had to leave, you know. So, uh, thank thank you for that. Uh, just, just, uh, is a last point. I always thought that she was somewhat dismissive of, of the Commonwealth as an institution as well, Ian, which isn't quite the same thing that uh, Mr. Singh was talking about before. but But she did seem to have a disdain for those Commonwealth heads of government meetings one, once every two years. But but I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, one thing I do know is that I've had you literally for, for two hours. So we need
3: to start wrapping this up. I, I can absolutely understand why you think that. And I think there is an element of truth in it. I, I think the point was that at every Commonwealth conference, she knew that she would be ganged up on on the issue of South African sanctions and that the media was not interested in anything else apart from her being humiliated by the rest of the Commonwealth leaders. And that happened virtually every time. So I think that would have certainly led... Uh, I think she respected it as an institution. Um, I mean, it's interesting her relationship with the, with the Queen on on that. Uh, and if you re- watched The Crown, obviously um the, the queen uh, was portrayed in that as really having a go at her about south africa in in no uncertain terms Now, i don't think that actually happened um but i i don't think she had a great love for the commonwealth in the same way that the queen had
2: let's move on nabonita you've been waiting for a long time you've earned your time though so go for it ask your question
9: thanks refield and thanks ian for being there uh okay as an indian kid growing up uh I think there have been a lot of comparisons between Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher and it's 40 years now. And I believe on the 16th of April, the two prime ministers actually met for 90 minutes without any AIDS. And later they kind of led their deliberations at the formal talks. And it was something that was seen as pretty unusual and, uh, I think uh, there was a lot of uh, divergent views on uh, issues like the U.S. plans to supply arms to Pakistan and Washington's overall policy towards the region. But when they went into the formal talks, there, was no, there were no strong words used, but it was clear that the two prime ministers actually expressed their views on a variety of international issues, including Afghanistan, the Iran-Iraq war, the situation uh, in West Asia, Poland, and the role of Soviet Union and United States that were playing in the various parts of the world. Now, I would love to know because there is always a love-hate romanticism between, uh, uh, with, with Indian viewers, etc., which I've grown up with. And I, I try to understand the Thatcher part of it much better now that I'm in this part of the world. But yes, there was always that Gandhi and Thatcher thing. And as what I mentioned, what what do you think happened? What was their relationship? If you studied them, uh, what was it that you feel was the outcome of what their talks were? Thank you,
3: Ian.
9: Um, done.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, again, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on this, but my... Uh, from what i know she had a huge respect and admiration for indira gandhi and i i'm pretty sure that i read somewhere and i can't remember where that when she heard of her assassination she actually shed a tear um which she did a lot more than she might like to have let known um and i mean they, look there they were some similarities between them i mean there weren't many female leaders at that time so there was a certain solidarity i suspect i mean politically i think they were probably miles apart where I think Margaret Thatcher probably regarded Indira Gandhi as a bit of a socialist. But she got on quite well with um, some left-wing leaders. She and Francois Mitterrand, for example, had a very good relationship, which you might not think that they would have, but um, they did. And I think the same was, was true with Indira Gandhi. Um, but I, I can't really get shed any more light than that, I'm afraid.
9: Yeah, they did have some personal, uh, you know, bonhomie between the two of them, which one has noticed. And as growing up in India, I've noticed this thing, always that comparison between Indira Gandhi and Tacho.
3: Yeah, I was just saying two iron ladies. And and absolutely. And and then there was
2: um, even a third, wasn't there? There was Benazir Bhutto in in the late 80s over there in in Pakistan. Indira Gandhi did many things. And one of them was uh, to show that a woman could lead um, a, a successful and a burgeoning country, you know, she could be at the reins of it and be a force on on, on the world stage and that's definitely what Indira Gandhi did for India Golda Meir over there in Israel and and Margaret Thatcher did uh, in the United Kingdom. Ian, I'm going to let you go you've been here for practically two hours but we'd love to have you back on again soon Um, since you were last on Mid-Atlantic, things have changed a little we now record these things on Clubhouse and um, so if you are listening to the podcast, um, why don't you get yourself on to clubhouse quite simply uh, go on to um your your app choice uh, your app uh, place of choice sorry whether it's the google play store whether it's the apple itunes store download the clubhouse app and basically what it means is that you can be part of the audience when we do these shows live generally Uh, We do these um, every second uh, Thursday, but for Ian Dale, a special guest, uh, we moved it to a Friday. So it means that you can be in the audience, you can ask a question and you can be part of Mid-Atlantic going out live, not just listening to the podcast. But Ian Dale, um, why don't you uh, tell the assembled people here uh, where they can tune into your show, sir?
3: Well, I broadcast uh, on LBC Radio, which you can listen to all over the world on the LBC app or the Global Player app, uh, between 7pm and 10pm, Monday to Thursday, uh, UK time. I also host several podcasts, the, the most relevant one to what we've been discussing today is called the prime ministers and i I edited a book last year on where there are essays on all 55 british prime ministers in the 300 years since 1721 and i'm doing a podcast on each of them i've done Uh, we're about number 36 at the moment um, and it's just interviewing the the person who wrote the essay about the life of the different of the various prime ministers so um, do have a look at that if you'd like to and i do a weekly political podcast called for the many which i do with the former labour home secretary jackie smith which is that gets the biggest audience of all the different podcasts i do so um yeah give it a try just just out of interest all right uh, you done all
2: the british prime ministers lord north uh, um, was uh, <laughs> we have a lot of American listeners. Where, where does he rank in the whole pantheon of British prime ministers?
3: Well, he's an interesting one, because wh- when I started doing the book, I realised that I knew very little about prime ministers. and I, I know a lot about post-war prime ministers, but very little about ones from the 18th century. And um, Nicky Morgan, the former cabinet minister, she wrote the essay on Lord North. And um, she actually gave him a much better write up than I would have thought, because he goes that if you look at the list of prime ministers, he always comes right near the bottom because he basically lost the colonies and um, which you can understand. But domestically, he actually was rather successful. So it's always wh- when you try and rank, do a league table of prime ministers, where do you put somebody who is hopeless in terms of Uh, foreign uh, incidents but in in domestic affairs was actually rather successful so he probably gets in the third quartile um, rather than right at the bottom I suppose Um, but it is fascinating to learn about all the uh, ones because there were several that I'd never heard of Have you heard of the Earl of Shelbourne no I recorded one of the podcasts today about George Canning, who was only Prime Minister for three months in 1827 because he died. Um, and he would had a fairly stellar career up until that point. And you are, there were so many what-ifs there. If he had lived, would there have been the Great Reform Act of 1832, which increased the franchise, etc., cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I've got a, a new book out actually this week called Prime Minister Priti and Other Things That Never Happened. It's a book of political counterfactuals. sort of what, what if Ireland had been on the Allies side in the Second World War? What if Donald Trump had died of COVID? All that sort of thing. There's 23 different essays. Uh, and the, all these sliding door moments in politics and history, I think are absolutely fascinating.
9: Ian, I can't resist but saying if you do Prime Minister Priti, <laughs> I'm in on it. <laughs> Well, you, <laughs> it was—it it is the most interesting thought that you had.
3: I'll tell you what, Nabonita, have a look at my website at iandale.com and you can read the chapter on How Pretty Patel Becomes Prime Minister, which I wrote. Um, we, we put that as a taster to encourage people to buy the book. So it's, it's on my website. So it's, it's quite, I've had a lot of fun with it, shall we say. It's written in a, in a sort of fictional sense. You
9: I am impressed I, because I've had so many discussions with her and believe you me, she's been so vicious to start with. <laughs> I would love to add on to that one. I will go onto that website and add on comments.
1: You don't seriously think that Pretty Patel has a, has a chance at pre- the premiership, do you?
3: Well, I gosh, hope not. Read the essay, and as I was writing it, I was becoming more and more convinced that she possibly does. Well,
9: she now has Sajid Javed and and Rishi Sunak to contend
3: with. The the scenario is she's fighting Rishi Sunak for the leadership, and she announces a policy which basically blows him out of the water, um, which, which is to bring back capital punishment. <laughs> it would never happen. But it, it, it's just a bit of fun, really. I'll
2: well, tell you what, though. I'll tell you that. what has been a little bit of fun. What well, is going to be a little bit of fun, though, Ian, is uh, your next book, which I believe is about American presidents. And I believe you've got a, a stellar essayist uh, who did some work on Martin Van Buren for you. Yeah. Well, who would that be, Royfield? I think you find that'll be me, Ian.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Get the proofs back next week. Um, I'm hoping you will return them to me with due speediness. I, I will do, uh, faster
2: than I actually wrote the article. So I believe I was the last person you said to actually submit uh, the submission. Unappro- uh, there you go, folks. Um, that's been us speaking uh, with Ian Dale about Margaret Thatcher, lover or loather. You can't dispute her influence over British politics and also world politics. We didn't even really touch on our relationship w- with Reagan and the fact that uh, basically Thatcherism predated Reagan. Or Reaganomics. Uh, we didn't really uh, talk about that. Um, she is one of the giant figures of the late 20th century. And uh, so it's been an utter honour to have Ian Dale of LBC and many other things besides with us to talk about her legacy and her time in power. That's been us. We're, it's Mid-Atlantic where we talk about US, UK and sometimes Canadian politics. Uh, be careful out there. Uh, be be mindful about covid look after your people who are close to you and uh, we'll see you all again in approximately uh what uh 14 days time for another rip roaring barnstorming episode of mid-atlantic take care
4: to those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase the u-turn i have only one thing to say u turn if you want to The ladies not for turning.